If you could pick one moment from Jacob's life as the most significant, what would it be? The life of Jacob takes up almost exactly half of the book of Genesis. Yes, for a chunk of that, his son Joseph is the main character. Uh, Jacob isn't mentioned in every chapter, but Jacob was born way back in chapter 25. He, He doesn't die until chapter 49, and then chapter 50 begins with his burial. So if you were to, to look through Genesis, looking uh, for a, a, a highlight to pick out from Jacob's life, you would have 25 chapters to flick through uh, to look for uh, one moment above all that you thought stood out. Would you pick perhaps Jacob's vision of the stairway to heaven uh, with the angels ascending and descending Or would you pick that moment we've already referred to when Jacob wrestled with God? Or what about him being reunited with either his twin brother Esau after all those years or or with his son Joseph after all those years thinking Joseph was dead? Or perhaps that moment when he stands before one of the most powerful men in the world in Pharaoh and he blesses him. Well, in one of the most famous chapters of the Bible, Hebrews chapter 11, the author picks out one highlight of Jacob's life as an example of his faith. Of all that material, he picks one highlight, and it's the events recorded in this chapter in front of us this evening. Hebrews eleven twenty one. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And as we come to this chapter tonight, I trust that we will do so with a sense that there's something really profound happening in this chapter. Something that in the book of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit wanted to highlight for us more than anything else. I'm going to look at this chapter under two headings this evening, seeing two things about how Jacob finishes the race. And firstly, we see how Jacob dies talking about the God who had redeemed him. Jacob dies talking about the God who had redeemed him. A few weeks ago, we considered whether Jacob was actually just a a bitter and jaded old man when he stood before Pharaoh and said, Few and evil have been the days of the years of my sojourning. Now, I trust at the time we saw that that wasn't the case. And in these next two chapters, we have clear evidence that Jacob did not die a bitter old man, but he died blessing others and worshipping God. And in that, there is uh, both an encouragement and a challenge The challenge is that in our world there is the the stereotype of the the grumpy old man, uh, maybe the the equivalent of the female, but as Christians we are to be different. John Wesley famously said, my people die well. Uh, Compared to those around them who had no true faith in Christ, Wesley's people died well. They didn't die terrified. They didn't die desperately trying to cling on for just a few more days on this earth. 
But surely dying well doesn't just include dying with confidence as to where we're going. Uh, though that's a big part of it. But surely dying well means not dying in bitterness about how things have turned out. It means that our, our final years and days should be spent blessing others and worshipping God as Jacob does here. So that's the challenge. And here's the encouragement. The encouragement is that the one part of Jacob's life that the Holy Spirit chooses to highlight for us in Hebrews comes right at the end of his life. Perhaps you think that your days of doing much for God are over or are rapidly coming to an end. But Jacob is so weak here in verse 22 that he has to summon all his strength just to be able to sit up in bed. His days of doing great things for God are surely over, right? Here's a man who's well over a hundred. He's blind. He's so weak. He can barely sit up in his bed. But this is the moment, this moment that the author to the Hebrews chooses to highlight. Jacob has had his ups and downs. But by God's grace, he finishes well. And that's what the Holy Spirit particularly wants to set before our eyes. As Jacob comes up to the final straight of his life, as he prepares to finish running the race and fighting the fight, he runs faster and he fights with more determination. The Apostle Paul was able to say, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. But tragically so many ease off. Many once ran enthusiastically, in their teens, their twenties, and yet by the time of their death, it is hard to tell whether they are even Christians or not. But by God's grace, may that not be us. And one of the things that's particularly notable about Jacob at the end of his life is that he dies talking about God. He dies talking about God. In verse 2, Joseph is brought in before Jacob. And what does Jacob say to him? Does he say, Well, Joseph, you've done well for yourself. I'm proud of you, son. You came from nowhere and you've risen to be prime minister over all of Egypt. And look at these strapping young sons that you have. No. Jacob's first words to Joseph, in what he knows may be his last encounter with him, are God Almighty, El Shaddai, God Almighty appeared to me. At this point in his life, every word counts. Well, well really, at all points in our lives, every word counts. We're told that we will be brought to judgment for every idle word, but particularly now when every word is perhaps painful. Jacob isn't going to waste any of them talking about trivial things. Instead, he wants to depart this life talking about God, talking about how God had blessed him, about how God had kept his promises, about how God has been his shepherd, about how God had been his redeemer, about how God had let him see his grandchildren, about how God would be with them when he died. 
And I think the challenge here for some of us is that we, we might think that we are people who talk a lot about God. But don't we find it easier to talk about church ministers, sermons and so on? I read these words the other day and found them challenging. Uh, the author says, Most of Christianity in the UK, particularly in theologically reformed churches, is strong on doctrinal truth, but extremely superficial when it comes to their personal lives. People are more than happy to debate the finer points of doctrine with each other all day long. They'll talk about the sermon and their favourite preacher, but they suddenly shut down when the conversation begins to get personal. They suddenly lose their tongues when asked about how their relationship with God is developing or when asked what specific sins that they are currently battling. Now, part of the reason for that is learned behaviour. If you've grown up at a time or in an environment where people talked about the externals but didn't talk about God, then, then it's hard to change. And change won't come overnight. But little by little, let's by God's grace seek to generate an atmosphere where it is natural to talk not just about church but to talk about God. Because if we don't live talking about God, it's unlikely that we'll die talking about God. And notice as well here that Jacob dies talking about God in front of his children and grandchildren. Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh are all there. Jacob clearly has a deep concern for the next generation. As I know that those here do. And for Jacob, part of his concern for the next generation shows itself in how naturally and constantly he talks about God in their presence. Ephraim and Manasseh must have been in their 20s at this point because they're born before Jacob came to Egypt. And we're told in the next chapter that Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years before he died. And it would have been impossible for these young men to hear Jacob talking in this chapter and not go away with the impression, Grandad has a big God. Grandad has a big God. What a legacy that would be to leave your children or grandchildren or the children in this church that you seek to influence. Maybe you'd be thinking, well, if I can leave my children a house and a bit of money, that'll set them up. But the one thing that ultimately matters for your children and grandchildren, as you know, is whether they trust in Christ or not. And surely we, we, we want more from them than a bare profession of faith. Surely we want to see them being useful in his kingdom. If you had to choose, would you, would we rather that our children were comfortable or that they were useful? Would we rather they were comfortable or rather they were useful? Would we rather they were taking the fight to the devil on the front lines 
Or would we rather they lived near us? If we had to choose. What does how we talk to our children and grandchildren about, communicate about what we think is really important. The best thing that we can leave to our children, grandchildren and the children in this church is that we have a big God. The author Don Whitney shares the following story about when his daughter Laurelyn graduated from high school. As they graduated, the students had the opportunity to share a few words. Uh, Turning to address her dad, uh, Don Whitney's daughter chose to talk about how he'd led family worship. She said, I'm going to cherish those moments together for as long as I live. You've been a wonderful, loving, spiritual leader for my entire life. Not only our time reading the Bible or Christian books together, but also reading classic books will be something I'll remember forever. Thank you so much, Dad, for making that such a huge part of our time as a family. And surely there's nothing that would thrill the heart of a Christian parent more than to hear that. Surely if our, if our children ever have the opportunity to stand up and speak about how, they, how we've influenced them, or, or if they have the opportunity to stand up and say how the church they grew up in and, and the people in that church influenced them, we don't want them to be able to say things that they could have learnt from any good, moral, unbelieving parent or church member. Surely this is the type of legacy we want to leave behind to, to our own children, if God gives us them, or our spiritual children. Even if it seems like our words to them make little impact at the time. And that's actually why Whitney tells that story. He, he tells it not to make himself look good, but as an encouragement. He immediately goes on to say, Now, before you imagine something that isn't true, I want to know, uh, and he, he goes on and says, Every single night that they conducted family worship, there was never a night where, at the end of that night, he had a real sense that God had been present among them. Uh, family worship, he talks about, is just a struggle getting people to listen And yet, he says, don't undervalue the night by night, week by week, month by month, year by year impact that something like that can have. And we can apply the same to whether it's leading family worship or just talking to the children in church about God. Week by week, a word here and there. Don't undervalue the impact it can have. So first, tonight, Jacob dies talking about the God who had redeemed him. Wouldn't that be a great way for for people to remember us, for the next generation to remember us, that we talked a lot about God. But then secondly, this evening, the second of our two points, Jacob died with confidence for the next generation. Jacob died with confidence for the next generation. In the current issue of Christianity Today, there's an article by Jen Wilkin entitled The Unexpected Parenting Comfort of Ecclesiastes. And in the article she says this. She says, between social media, shifting sexual ethics, sex abuse scandals, pandemics, pornography, and all the usual challenges of raising kids, 
the consensus is clear. Parenting today is hard. Christian parents are afraid. Perhaps more than I've seen in my 25 years in women's ministry. And I have no doubt that she's right. Christian parents are afraid. Which probably isn't helped when older people tell us, well, I'm glad I don't have to raise my children in this day and age. When they tell us about how they worry for the next generation. So that is the atmosphere in which we live. And in light of that, I find Jacob's words here to be a breath of fresh air. Because rather than dying afraid for the next generation, he dies with confidence for the next generation. He says, I die, but God will be with you. Where does his confidence come from? Is it because Jacob is one of those eternal optimists? <laughs> no, I think if anything, Jacob is a pessimist. This is the man who wouldn't send Benjamin to Egypt in case anything bad happened. This is the man who, when his brothers eventually convince him that he has to send Benjamin, laments that Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Jacob isn't an optimist. So now that he comes to die, what is it that gives him confidence for the next generation? The answer is in verse 21. Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you. What gives him confidence is that he knows that whatever happens, God will be with the next generation. Just as God had been with him, his own father and his grandfather. Look at what he says in verse 15. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. Spurgeon says if we want to bless young people, one of the likeliest means of doing so will be our personal testimony to the goodness of God. Jacob here gives his personal testimony to the goodness of God. And it, it will be a blessing to them to hear that. But it's also part of what gives Jacob confidence for them in the first place. After all, God had been with him just as God had been with his father and his grandfather. So why would he not be with the next generation? It makes sense, doesn't it? If God has been with his people now for three generations spanning hundreds of years why is he suddenly going to stop being with the next generation what is there about God's track record that would make anyone think today that he's going to abandon the current generation or the next generation so that's the first part of what gives Jacob confidence that yes he would die but God would be with these boys the second part of what gives Jacob his confidence in verse 22 is that he knows God keeps his promises so his confidence because God will be with them but also because God keeps his promises I am about to die but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers What we have to realise here is that, humanly speaking, Jacob had no reason for optimism. 
He says, God will bring you back to the land of your fathers. And that seems very unlikely for two reasons. For a start, God had told Abraham that his descendants would be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. People today say they worry about what children being born today will face. And I'm sure we, we can understand that. We don't know what's coming next. Though actually they might face better days than ours. Uh, Roe versus Wade might not be the last wicked 20th century legislation that will be overturned in our century. So people today say they're worried for the next generation when, when they don't actually know what will happen the next generation. It may be worse than ours, it may be better, we don't know. But Jacob did know what was going to happen and it wasn't going to be pretty. He knew that 400 years of slavery were coming. But does he say, well, Joseph's son, I'm glad I won't be around to see it. Does he say, Joseph's son, I don't envy you bringing up children in this day and age. No, he says, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will do what he's promised. So Jacob had little reason for confidence, humanly speaking, that God would bring them back to the land. Because after 400 years of slavery, what state would the people be in? The second reason why, humanly speaking, Jacob had little reason for confidence was that the call Canaan, the land of your fathers, seemed almost laughable. Because all that Abraham and his descendants had ever managed to acquire for themselves in the land of Canaan was a burial ground. God had promised the land to Abraham's descendants. But after three generations of living in the land, all they own is a field. And now they're not even going to be living in the land for centuries John Calvin says, For whereas it might seem that the promise of God had failed, we have to realise that as far as Jacob can see, humanly speaking, it looks like the promise of God has failed at this point. Where is the land he promised to Abraham? He's not even in the land anymore. Uh, never mind owning any of it other than this field. Calvin says, for whereas it might seem that the promise of God had failed, Jacob excites his sons to a good hope. And pronounces with a courageous spirit that the land is his own. I love that phrase. Jacob dies with a courageous spirit. Not with doom and gloom. And Calvin says that the reason for this confidence so that it was that he would accustom his sons by his example to have faith in the word of God. If Jacob didn't have faith in the word of God, he would have no hope to pass on to the next generation. But he wants to pass on to them that hope. So we can say not just that Jacob dies with confidence for the next generation, but that he dies with an infectious confidence for the next generation. Because the next generation will take their cues from us. And notice how Joseph shares his father's faith and shares his father's concern for the next generation. When Joseph gets the phone call from the hospital, as it were, that his father has taken a turn for the worse, 
He doesn't say, well, I'm Prime Minister. Some of my brothers can go and, and see to the old man. Uh, I'll maybe come later when, when I finish up my important work. Joseph goes straight there. We saw back in chapter 41 how his rise to power hadn't turned Joseph's head. He hadn't forgot who his true people were. And it's the same here. Some of have said that he regarded it as a greater privilege to be a son of Jacob than to preside over a hundred kingdoms. A greater privilege to be a son of Jacob than to preside over a hundred kingdoms. No matter how important Joseph may be in worldly terms, he's never lost a sense that his greatest privilege is to belong to the family of God. May we never lose that sense either that our greatest privilege is to belong to the family of God. And because Joseph has a concern for the next generation, he brings his sons with him. His sons who by birth are half Egyptian. His sons who who have known what Hebrews calls the treasures of Egypt. His sons who have never set foot in the promised land and never will. Humanly speaking, Jacob had nothing to offer Manasseh and Ephraim. They would have been cultured, educated. He's just an old farmer. But actually, because God is with Jacob, he's more important than Pharaoh. Remember how not long before this, Jacob had blessed Pharaoh. And that's the proper order because who's more important? The ruler over all of Egypt, uh, one of the world powers, or or this this old man from the world. Jacob is more important because God is with him. It was said of Moses, or it would be said of Moses generations later, that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And it can be said of Joseph here that he refused to let his sons be called Egyptians because they were children of promise. And so he brings them to Jacob and Jacob blesses them. And we can draw an analogy here about bringing our children to church, about doing family worship with them, about praying for them, about doing what we can to spend time with other Christians, whether that's through sending them to camps or conferences or or just arranging a play date with other Christian kids and driving a four-hour round trip to make it happen. In the world's eyes, these things are pointless. To take worship, for example, surely our children would gain more on Sundays by being allowed to play in a sports team or uh, by going to a museum or or just spending their weekend uh, somewhere else to broaden their horizons. But we must look through the eyes of faith. Those of us with young children need to ask ourselves, what sort of people do we want our children to be in 20 years? And under God, our priorities now are what will shape that. If our greatest desire for our children is that they will be sons and daughters of God, then we'll pray for it and we'll make sacrifices for it. To quote Spurgeon one more time, he makes a comment on this chapter. In a way, it's such a simple observation, 
but it's one that Christian parents ignore at their peril. He says, as Joseph took Ephraim and Manasseh to see their aged grandfather, let us bring our children where blessings may be expected. Joseph brought his children to the place where blessing could be expected. And what happened? They were blessed. They were blessed. Now, it's not automatic. I've quoted before the story about the man who came to his minister and said, every day I pray with them, every day I read with them, every, day, every week I bring them to church morning and evening. But there was no atmosphere of grace in the home. The father had all the reformed doctrines lined up in a row, but he didn't love his kids. They didn't see a man who delighted in God. It's not automatic. But... Neither is it a surprise that when we bring our children to the place of blessing, that they're blessed. Because that's what God wants to do. That's what God delights to do. Verse 9 isn't just the words of Jacob to Joseph, but it's the word, words of God to parents and grandparents. Bring them to me that I may bless them. Bring them to me that I may bless them. And that's something that, that all of us can do for the children in the church or for our own children, even if, if they're grown up and, and at the minute seem to have no interest in God. We can all bring them to God that he might bless them. And Joseph's children are blessed here. And how are they blessed? They're blessed by being adopted. They're blessed by being adopted. Jacob says, verse 5, And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. So it's as if Ephraim and Manasseh move up a generation and become part of the twelve tribes of Israel. These foreign-born sons are given an inheritance in the promised land. And so when the 144,000 are listed in Revelation chapter 7, 12,000 come from the tribe of Manasseh and 12,000 come from the tribe of Joseph. They're not Jacob's children they're his grandchildren, but they're, they're moved up a generation. That They're adopted. The language in verse 12 of the boys being on his knees, uh, which is Jacob's knees, seems very strange to us. Uh, I think it's probably why if we, we just read this chapter, we, we assume they're, they're, they're infants. Uh, but, but then when we realize that the boys have to be in their 20s, we think this is all very strange. Uh, literally, it says, from with his knees... Uh, and this is actually legal language for adoption. If we were to go back to chapter 30, verse 3, uh, there Rachel gives, her, her, gives Jacob her servant Bilhah and says, go into her that she may give birth on my knees. In other words, that her children may be counted as mine. So on my knees, it's talking about adoption. And that's one of the ways we see the gospel in this chapter. It's always good to ask of any chapter of the Bible, how do I go from here to the gospel? We see the gospel 
in places in this chapter that we don't have time to look at in detail tonight. In verse 15 we have that first mention in the Bible of God as a shepherd which points us forward to Jesus as the good shepherd who would give up his life for his sheep. In verse 16 we have the mention of the angel, that is the angel Jacob fought with. And again it's none other than Jesus Christ. In verse 16 we have the first mention of redemption in the Bible. But this language of adoption also points us to the gospel. Because in the gospel we are adopted into God's family. And adoption means that we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Ephraim and Manasseh had privileges as sons of Joseph, the prime minister of all Egypt. But they will have far more privileges as sons of Jacob. Brought up in a sense with a a silver spoon in their mouths just like Moses. But Moses rejected all that to identify with the people of God. And Ephraim and Manasseh by God's grace will do the same. What an awesome privilege it is for us who by nature are children of the devil to be adopted into the family of God. And what a beautiful picture of the gospel it is when Christian parents adopt children too. That they might be brought up as part of the family of faith. And as Jacob blesses these boys, he submits to the sovereignty of God. He puts the younger before the older. Joseph protests, but Jacob just smiles and says, I know, my son, I know. Jacob may have been blind, but he could see clearly. He knew exactly what he was doing. And what a thing it is to die trusting in the sovereignty of God rather than trying to fight against it. Jacob dies talking about God. Jacob dies with confidence for the next generation. Uh, And if you want a bonus heading, Jacob dies trusting in the sovereignty of God. And all those things can be true of each of us. In 1882, Thomas Houston was dying He had been minister of Knockbracken RP Church in Belfast for just shy of 55 years. For the last two years he had been suffering from what was probably cancer of the larynx. During his last couple of months he had difficulty breathing and was unable to speak above a whisper. But he continued to write out a sermon each week. A couple of weeks before he died, he wrote out a sermon on Genesis 48:51. Behold, I die, but God will be with you. Jacob died in that confidence. Thomas Houston died in that confidence. And by God's grace, we can die in that confidence too. And brothers and sisters, we can do that. We can die well. Not by our own willpower, but because the God who has been our shepherd all our life long will walk through that valley of the shadow of death with us and he will redeem us from all evil. Amen.
Let's close by singing a psalm of great hope and confidence in God for, for any time in our lives, but especially as we approach death. It's Psalm 73b, Psalm 73b, tune Wiltshire 178. Psalm 73b, page 160, tune 178. Verse 2. Thou with thy counsel while I live wilt me conduct and guide and to thy glory afterward receive me to abide. And notice verse 6 at the top of page 161. It says, In God I trust. In God I trust. And what does trusting lead him to do? It leads to him talking about God. In God I trust that all his works I may declare abroad. And what, what work above all would he declare? Well, God's work of redemption, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Psalm 73b will stand to sing praise.